I'm going to start off with a little bit of audience participation this morning. Uh, I saw a video come out a couple weeks ago. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the text uh, that came across on this video. And I want to know if you know what this video is about. That's going to be the participation part. Now, if you've seen this video, know that I'm not going to try and imitate this video. If I do that with my, you know, accent or anything like that, it's just going to go really, really bad. But I'm going to read you the text. And if you know the video... We'll come to it. Do we have anyone in the building today willing to testify? Talk to me now. He's done so much already. We've witnessed him do so much already. We've heard about the things this man can do already. And we can't just help but go and celebrate him. Haters, go ahead and recognize that when you speak his name, you're going to go higher, higher, higher. So excuse me while I cut a step. Again, I'm... I'm not doing this. I'm not going to cut a step here. I can't help but honor him. I can't help but lift him up. And I've got one last question for you. Can I get a witness? And that video ended saying that we are all witnesses together. Does anyone know who that witness or that video was about? Just say it. There it is, LeBron James. All right, raise your hand if you knew that. (laughs) That's my wife, y'all. (laughs) <laughs> we might have watched the video together. Uh, who's seen that video? Just raise your hand. All right. Okay, we've got a few. Who's like, meh, sports, I don't really care. <laughs> you know what was interesting about this video was that uh, everyone in the NBA world had to acknowledge that the greatness had appeared, that they witnessed it, that It can no longer be disputed that LeBron's one of the greatest players because this video came in response that he's now the greatest, the highest scorer in NBA history. But what was interesting was how many people felt like they had to make the call whether he was the best now or Jordan was the best. (laughs) We don't want to just recognize greatness. We want to recognize the greatest. And while a lot of you may not care about NBA, that's, that's actually totally fine that you don't. Is there anything that all people of all time could come, back, come behind and recognize, no, this is the greatest, that everyone could agree on? Someone, some, someone or something so great that no one could even be indifferent about it, coming into the presence of greatness. What well, our psalm gets at this idea this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 97, and if you have, are using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 525. This psalm is in a series of psalms, Psalm 93 through 100, that has one singular theme. That the greatness of the king who's going to rule the entire world. And God is that king. Now the psalms before and after this one, they both really focus on delight and pure joy. What makes our psalm unique from the others is that there is an awe-inspiring view of God, the king of righteousness. And when he shows up, when he appears, it is a scene full of wonder and fear and joy and shame and gladness meant to capture our imaginations, but even more our lives. Because when God appears, there is no neutral response. 
The main idea from our psalm today, that's going to be my main idea as well, is that no one will be indifferent at the appearance of the Lord. No one will be indifferent at the appearance of the Lord. And we'll develop this through, through three points that I see in the passage. First of all, that the presence of the Lord, verses 1 through 5. Proclamation of the Lord, verses 6 through 9. And the protection of the Lord. Presence, proclamation, and protection. And the question of the sermon and each of its points is, is not if, if we're going to respond, but how we'll respond. So for anyone in the room, if you're, if you're not a Christian, this morning as we go through this, I want you to consider, is this God real? Is this the true God that all creation will recognize? And for many of the Christians in the room, all the Christians in the room, I want us to be asking, is our God big enough? Is our view of God big enough? Well, let's begin thinking about our first point, presence of the Lord, in verses 1 through 5. Listen as I read. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world and the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. This section gives us an idea that, of how all creation, the whole earth, will respond at the appearance of the Lord. And it begins with joy. We see that in the first verse. Let the earth rejoice and let the many coasts and islands be glad. That basically means that the most obscure parts of the earth, the furthest parts that are out there, they're going to rejoice and be glad too. The whole earth is going to rejoice and be glad. Why? Well, because the Lord, the Lord reigns. You know, the Lord for Israel, who would have been hearing the psalm, was, was the covenant name that God had given himself. It's loyal, loving kindness, but it's also a name that distinguishes himself as God, the only God. And this Lord reigns, and that means that he is he's sovereign. He can do what he pleases, and what he pleases is good because he is all wise. He is perfectly just. So that means wherever his reign is, Evil is not, therefore let the earth rejoice. And so, I don't know, maybe we try and picture, what does this look like? Of the whole earth rejoicing, and the Lord becomes manifest and presents himself. I don't think it's well, like what we're going to see next. I don't know if that's what immediately comes to our mind next. It's almost like whiplash, where they're talking about gladness, which means gladness. Joy, a bright joyfulness. Now we shift the scene to, to a theophany. And that just means this is when God makes himself visibly manifested before us. And it shifts, the tone does. And it's, it's poetic on a purpose. It's meant to leave us in awe. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, meaning he's the one who can sit on the throne and rightly rule and rightly judge because he's perfectly righteous and just. And just. 
and the mountains melt like wax. The earth sees and trembles. Yet this isn't just poetry. This is history. Uh, this is a theophany that's pulling strongly from Exodus chapter 19, which is the part in the story after Israel is delivered from Egypt. Now God is going to dwell with his people and he comes to rest on this mountain. And we get a lot of the same imagery that, that clouds surround the mountain, which is a sign of his unapproachable holiness. And the Lord came down in fire and judgment in pure judgment, meaning nothing unpure could be around him. And the mountain itself shook. In Israel, they said, Moses, you go. <laughs> we'll do whatever he says. Because the scene was so awe-inspiring. Although they had just been so joyful, they danced and sang after making through the Red Sea, still to come in the presence of God. It was something to behold. But it isn't just the past. It isn't just reminding us of the past. It's reminding us of the future. It's like giving us memories of the future. Now, God doesn't work like a magic eight ball so that we know exactly what's going to happen in our life a week from now about particular topics. But he has told us the most important storyline, how things will end. And this is a picture of the final day when Jesus, when God when Jesus returns in full and final judgment, the foes will fall, the enemies of God. And it will be a scene of awe and majesty. What's the same with all of the reactions we see here? Well, we see that when all of creation encounters God's presence, everyone Everything in creation recognizes this is God. There's no dispute. There is no indifference. No one else has the power as God has. The authority, the true righteousness. And when God makes himself manifest, there's no negotiating. There's no negotiating. There's no self-justifying, no self-promoting, no argument of fairness, only awe and majesty. And when he appears on the final day, there will be no doubt in all of creation that he is God and that he is altogether different than his creation. You know, part of the creation we see responding to God are, are the foes. These are enemies of God, uh, enemies of righteousness and unrighteousness. And we see that on the final day, the foes, there will be judgment and destruction. We'll come back to that later. But what I want to focus on right now is, is how can the earth, you know, rejoice and be glad and tremble in fear? <laughs> like, make up your mind, right? Or I, I don't know. It, it seems like these are conflicting. Can it be both? And I think we know the answer can be both. When we come into the presence of something so much more powerful, perfect, beautiful than ourselves, we can both delight in it and joy and recognize it and give it the reverence that it deserves. I know, I think about the, like the ocean for me. Uh, coastlines are beautiful. 
I love the ocean. When I think about just looking out and how much like water just keeps going forever, you know, it's just like there's this whole realm out there that it's just beautiful and the waves come crashing in. I can take joy and delight in looking at the ocean, yet I don't, I don't mess with the ocean. <laughs> I don't swim very far out into the ocean. I, if I'm going to be out in a boat, I'm going to be in a boat with someone who knows what they're doing because I don't want to get stuck in an undercurrent. Beautiful, powerful things are worthy of both our fear and our joy. And I think this complexity, understanding this complexity in our response to, to the Lord is important to think about and how we respond to him in worship. Even as we think about coming in to him today in, in our services. Because we, we know that the Lord particularly dwells with his people. Although it is not manifest like this theophany, it's manifest through one another. And we know that the Lord is here. So how do we think about even gathering in the Lord's presence trying to keep these things connected and not divided. You know, first of all, it's really just mainly a heart position, right? If we come in ready to behold our God. But we, we do some things in our, in our liturgy, in our service to help us with this. And I thought you might, it might be helpful if you knew this. First of all, we're going to sing songs that keep these connected. I don't know if you've thought about the songs we've sung so far, but so many of them talked about like trim, with trembling rejoice. Almost every one of our songs held these intention together really well. We sing a song called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Uh, we hear awful with our modern ears, think like awful, terrible. Think awe-filled. And when we think about coming in the presence of God, like how sweet and precious and awe-filled is that time? We're, we're, we're going to sing about this. I think the goal is that we're going to be fighting for reverence in our services. So that's why we actually do this moment of reflection. Uh, if you've been around, you know this is a little bit newer. It's in part to help us mentally shift. We're, we're busy. We're distracted. There's a lot going on when we come into church. So it's a moment to, to recenter ourselves. But it's not just to like calm our minds down. It's to prepare ourselves to hear from the righteous king, from the Lord, to, to realize we come and worship a God who is altogether different than us. It's why we do a prayer of, of praise. So you may wonder why sometimes we do a prayer of praise or thanksgiving. There's some discipline that comes in just coming to praise God for who he is. Sometimes if you notice in our personal prayer lives, we might say, I praise you for this, and they quickly move to, but ah, I sinned, I'm sorry, I confess this, I need your help, or thank you for this. And those are all good things. We need to be praying that. But how often do we just sit and meditate on God and who he is? And so with our prayers of praise, we want to do that. Uh, you know, our music team, uh, they're trained really well, and we're always growing in this, but they, they really fight to keep the Lord the center of our worship. And one of the things I tell our music team people is, uh, you know, uh, one thing you should not do when you're up here is look indifferent. Like, you shouldn't look like this isn't affecting you. Now, you don't have to, like, turn on the smile or turn on the serious face, but you need to think about how's the Lord affecting you. And if you always, like, only smile, I want more for you in your spiritual walk. And there's just joy. Like, I want you to have some serious moments with the Lord where you really deal with them. Uh, you know, you could look at me and you're like, Neil, you always smile. I know. I, I smile a lot. And I think it's, like, it's genuine and joyful. Uh, 
But, you know, this is something I, I work on. Like, I, I think about the songs we're going to sing, and I just realize, like, how, how is this song affecting me as I hear about the revelation of the Lord? It's why our sermons and our prayers are a little bit longer. We want to hear about the Lord and who the Lord is. And there's just some reverence we want to fight for in our service. But we have to work hard not just to know that there's complexity in, in our responses to God, but to understand how they work together. I mean, the earth can rejoice because God alone can bring true peace by bringing true justice. And the scene that we have in the text here, that his lightning lights up the world and the earth sees and trembles. It's hard to read that, but to know on the other side of God bringing true justice, well, then I think true joy can come. Joy can only come where righteousness flourishes. You think about most of the suffering and pain that you go through. It's because of injustice. Because maybe you haven't been treated right or you treated someone else wrong. That's where our pain comes from. And we know that we have a God that's, that's sovereign. It's all-powerful. And he's not going to let that last. No. He's going to come with judgment. If we don't delight in the judgment itself, sometimes it's hard for me, but we delight that there is someone greater than ourselves who will come to judge. You know, sometimes with these theophanies, they can be convicting because uh, we might be uncomfortable with the scene because we actually don't love God's righteousness as much as we might think. And I think that exposes that, at least it does in me. But we have a complicated relationship with righteousness. We love it until we're the one that's wrong. We like being the right one. That's when we really like righteousness. And in the end, sometimes it feels like we're loving ourselves and what we love more than the righteousness of God. Or maybe we're just so worn out seeing the injustice and unrighteousness in our culture or in our relationships. We feel like, I don't know, is anything really going to change? There's just pendulum swinging all the, all the time and half-truths exist everywhere. So we, we cling to like certain personalities to help us explain what's wrong with this world. They often agree with us, which is nice. But, it, but what makes us maybe uncomfortable with this scene is that actually this God's righteousness goes beyond what we define, beyond what, like the parts that we <laughs> uh, struggle to understand our own righteousness in. And our own righteousness will always be complicated when we look to God's creation to explain it. We have to look to someone else, to something else, we have to look to our king of righteousness who will bring perfect justice when he returns. We look to this God. Maybe I think sometimes the hardest thing about looking at theophanies like this, though, is, is knowing that, that we're the unrighteous. That actually, we're the foes. We're the ones who will be burned up on every side. So how could there be any gladness? Well, I think our next section helps us to answer this. If these last verses were all about all of creation having this one response, recognizing that this is the undisputed king of the world. This is the only God. Well, these next verses 
they point us to a decision that all humanity, not just creation, but humanity, will have to make upon hearing this proclamation, hearing about this God. And we, we have two responses. Will you follow the one true, regard, true God or will you follow the wannabe fake gods? So let's turn to, that, to those verses now as we think about our second point, the proclamation of the, of the Lord. Listen as I read verses 6 through 9. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the peoples see his glory. All who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame. All the gods must worship him. Zion hears and is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are exalted above the gods. Well, we see now that we're zooming in a little bit on the peoples. You can see this, that now all the heavens proclaim, all of God's creation proclaims his righteousness. And all the peoples will see his glory, meaning seeing the work of his hands. Romans will talk about this, that, that all of creation, all people can see that there is some being with an eternal power and divine nature who, who created this world and put it together. All the peoples will see this glory. The question is, who are all the peoples going to worship? How is all of humanity going to re- help us respond? And to help us feel the, the weight of this text, I think it's helpful to, to think through a, a series of contrasts that are here. First, there's, there's a showdown of the gods. Secondly, there's, there's humanity's response. And then there's an outcome. So if we take a look first at just this kind of showdown of the gods, we see in verse 7 that all who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame, and all the gods must, must worship him. So the, the gods and the idols are the ones opposed to God. They're not the true God. And there's kind of a fun wordplay happening here. Uh, sometimes when you read the Old Testament uh, and you read idols or worthless idols, it's this word Elohim. It's fine. You don't have to remember that. But what it is, it's a twist on the word Elohim, the word that's used for God, rulers, sometimes angels. And so it's saying in essence that like you're, you're not even, you're like a no God. You're a fake God. There's nothing there. It reminds me in a way of these sunglasses that I got when I was a kid. All of my friends, uh, they had Oakleys, you know, baseball players and stuff like that. So I wanted my pair of Oakleys. Uh, except they were just out of our price range. I couldn't get them. Okay, well, we see this table at the side uh, of a street, and they had a bunch of sunglasses, and I go look, and I'm like, look, they have Oakleys for $8. <laughs> we knew they weren't Oakleys. We affectionately called them Jokeleys. And so I, I got my Jokeleys. They look pretty cool. The, the thing about them was, like, the lens, they didn't get the curve right, and so everything was distorted, and I had to look kind of just this right way to look, look straight. And no joke, within, I think, a couple hours, I went to go, like, reach for something, and my depth perception was out, and I, like, kind of jammed my finger a little bit. And the saddest part of the story is I kept wearing them because I just wanted to have Oakleys. <laughs> I, these no gods, these false gods are kind of the same. They're, they're a joke. They can't even be considered, like, that they're real. I mean, they're carved out of wood or metal or stone. Like, they're not even living and breathing. And you're like, you could knock one off of a table. Are you telling me that this God is going to beat the Most High? No, I don't think so. 
And then the next word at the end of the verse is the word gods, which is the word Elohim. Uh, And in this case, we know how to translate this one because we read it earlier in Hebrews chapter 1 that it was translated angels. So meaning that God's created heavenly beings, like they must worship this king. They must worship this one. And so nothing in all of God's creation that could be considered a god could possibly stand up against the most high. And that's the point he lands on at the end in verse 9 of this section. For you, Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are exalted above all the gods. And so there's this showdown of the gods. It's not really a showdown. (laughs) It's really clear that there's one true and holy God. But now the question is, how is humanity going to respond? Well, there's only two choices. That's it. One is to worship the true God, as we see Zion doing, or we worship the false gods, as we see in verse 7. And let me just make it clear that actually there's no indifferent decision that could be made here. Once we hear the proclamation of the heavens, once we hear the verbal proclamation of this God in the gospel, well then on that final appearance, we will all be responsible. And so any decision we make today to follow the most high God or other false gods, it isn't going to age well. And we have responsibility. You know, this is what a lot of idol worship is. Again, Romans 1 will give some language to this. That God would give uh, idol worshipers over to their own sinful desires and to worshiping created things. And that's, I think, what we see today in our culture. We worship whatever I think is true and I feel is true. And so that's what gets my affection, my attention. And it's what guides even my immoral sense of righteousness, which is scary. Or we worship created things. Cars, money, sex, science. There's a bunch of things we can worship. And to be clear, everything I just said are good things. The issue is when we make them a God thing. They were never created to be true God. So the question is, are we going to worship the one true God or these kind of wannabe joke gods and we figure out on our own whether we're right or wrong? Well, I think God has given us something better than just us trying to figure out what's right or wrong. And to do that, he gave us another theophany 2,000 years ago that the world had never seen. And God appeared on earth, not in a show of power and majesty, but in weakness as an infant, as God took on flesh. And Jesus was his name. He was not just another man, not just another teacher. He was God. But nor was he so distant or unreachable. He had human flesh like us. In Hebrews 1, that quote that we referred to earlier, and that quotes verse 6 of our verse in the Psalms, it makes the point that when Jesus was born, the great king was born, who would rule in righteousness and justice, and who has to be worshipped by the angels because he is greater than the angels. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, look at Jesus the exact expression of who God is. He lived a life of perfect justice and righteousness. 
The weak and the oppressed found safety with him. And yet he spoke out against those who were being unjust. And in the greatest manifestation, visible demonstration of God's love and, Jesus, and, and justice, Jesus died on a cross as a perfect sacrifice, meaning we were once foes. We had set God against us. We deserved death. But Jesus took that death upon him so that we would not have to go through that death. And then Jesus physically rose from the dead, showing his power and victory over Satan and sin and death. And the way that we become victors, like Christ, non-foes, are simply trusting, by trusting Jesus for our salvation and turning to him all the days of our lives. You heard it in our testimony earlier today, that it's actually not based on our performance, but on the king's performance. And so we trust in him. And we see that when Jesus died, he, he forgives our sins when we trust him. He cancels that debt, uh, of, of our legal debt against God, which stood against us and condemned us, and he nailed it to the cross. And in the process, he disarmed the powers and authorities, all creation, spiritual beings, and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over the cross. How can we rejoice before such a majestic and triumphant, fearful God? Because he died for us. Because now we can experience that nearness that Jesus experiences with God. That we can come into his presence in those thick clouds of holiness. We now can approach the Lord. I can't think of much more joyful than that. So we see these two responses. Are we going to believe in the true God, in Jesus, the true representation of God, God himself? Or are we going to believe in these fake gods? And we see that there are two outcomes. If we believe in these false gods, we will be put to shame. Uh, it's going to be shameful that we put our trust in something so, so foolish. And if we trust in the wrong God, that, that final day of judgment, I don't, want, I don't wish that for anybody. Or we trust in, like Zion, we hear the news. I don't know if you noticed that he hear, Zion hears the news. This is God's people. And the villages rejoice because of the, your judgments, Lord. They know that with these judgments come joy and peace. So if I can come back to my argument, I, I, just, I, I, want, I want it to be really clear this morning that there's no neutral decision here. There's no indifferent decision when we think about who we're going to worship. So for a non-Christian that's here this morning, I, I want you to know this God. I want you to put your allegiance with this God. And I want you to, to see Jesus clearly for who he was and to see that Jesus is the only way to God. I say this because I, I want you to experience this joy and this gladness that we see in the text here. And so if you have any questions about this God, you want to talk more, I encourage you to have the conversation today. Have the conversation today with myself, any pastor here, or just anyone that's next to you. Ask them to tell you about this God and why they believe. 
for the Christian. To be glad and rejoice and fight for this in faith. You know, it's not that God ever promised our circumstances will change today. You hear that from us often. But we know they will when Jesus appears again. Everything will be radically different when Jesus appears. So, so rejoice and be glad that you're not a foe, but you're a friend of God. You're a lover of God, that he is present with you. Be glad and rejoice that God has opened your eyes and, and, and you have seen him. And so you have already won on that final day in Christ Jesus. You will have no shame on that final day. Any shame you might feel today will be obliterated on that righteous day. And be glad and know that God has not let you forever be duped by these joke gods that really only seek to destroy you. No, God is going to see you through the end. And when we have confidence in that, that affects how we live today. And that's where our final section takes us. In the psalm, it has kind of been like a funnel. So at the beginning, we're talking about all creation. How are they going to respond to God? All humanity. Now it's looking at now how are God's people going to respond now that they know they are protected by this almighty God. And so that's what we're going to think about in our third and final point, protection of the Lord. Listen as I read verses 10 through 12. You who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of his faithful ones. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous. Gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. And give thanks to his holy name. Well, our psalm ends with an encouragement to the lovers of God that they hold on until the daylight and victory comes. And we, we see that we do that by hating evil, by being glad and thanking the Lord. But the hope and strength to do this is never really based in us first and foremost, but it's all motivated and empowered by, by God's work that we see in this that the majestic and victorious, all-powerful God that we saw earlier in the passage, all of that power and majesty is now devoted to protecting his loved ones. And so we see that in verse 10, that in this life, that God is guarding the life of his faithful ones. He rescues them from the power of glory. And this is not a promise to protect God's people from calamity, as we said earlier, we know that we will suffer, but this is a promise that God will see us through to the final day, that when light dawns for the righteous, therefore gladness just blossoms out of that. That bright joyfulness will come. And if our passage has taught us anything, this is not wishful thinking. This is the factual thinking. Just as certain as it is that Jesus will appear again, it is as certain that he is guarding us today. It is as certain that the light will come. And this, I think, changes how we fundamentally view ourselves and how we live. And the more we understand this, we actually kind of makes it harder to live indifferently. Like, why, why wouldn't we want to love the one who loved us first? Why wouldn't we want to hate evil? when we've seen such grace and righteousness demonstrated to us? Why wouldn't we be glad 
that we will face the Lord with joy on that final day. And that all comes from God's covenant love to us. And we are safe in that love. You know, I, I think that's something that our, our modern society is looking for a lot. Safety. I'm sure you've heard that word come up often. Like, this is a safe place or a safe person. And we want to be people who are safe people. But ultimately, we want to point to the God who is a safe God. Who we don't have to try and be anyone else, but we can come to him with all of our weaknesses and our brokenness. And we can trust that he is guarding us. And then that means we can choose to follow after him in freedom, not obligation. The obligation has already been met. You know, I, uh, uh, Didi, she sent me a message, uh, one of the members of our church, and I, I was so encouraged by it because she had been reading Psalm 97 uh, this week, preparing for the, the sermon, and then she read another article, and she connected some dots and sent them to me. And I thought, this is, this is wonderful, that we have a church full of people uh, reading Scripture. And, and she sent me this article from uh, Tim Keller. Uh, and I'm just going to read a part of this as we think about this in light of the passage. And Tim is saying that the, the modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it's also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. And this has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. In stark contrast, Christianity offers grace and covenant. And it teaches members that salvation is by sheer grace, not moral efforts. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. So the cosmic ruler becomes our unconditionally loving, heavenly father. And I just want to tell you, if you're feeling exhausted from having to try and be a certain person, create an identity and sustain it, I want to tell you, believe in Christ and rest in him. Rest in him as a lover of God. And then as we fight now to live from this position of non-indifference, but of love, of safety, then I think we can hate evil. So I don't know, as as we see that phrase, how do you think you're going to fight and hate evil this week? You know, evil is kind of the opposite of righteousness and justice. And so, so maybe you need to think about this in light of your relationships with other people. Like, do you see evil? Do you see people being marginalized or forgotten? Like, go to them. Love them. Treat them rightly and justly. I've been hearing more stories of people doing this in the church and outside of the church. There are, there's been a handful of preachers now go to Salvation Army, or not Salvation Army, uh, Portland Rescue Mission, thank you. Collective effort here. Uh, and, and serving food and then giving a gospel message at the end. I love that. We should treat, try and treat everyone around us rightly. But maybe we should also start with it in our own lives. Thinking about how are you going to fight evil in your own life. And I think one way is to just keep coming and reading the whole counsel of Scripture. I think sometimes we can be selective about the kinds of righteousness we think is important and not important. 
And when we read the whole counsel of Scripture, we're constantly introduced to all of God's righteousness. And God has a chance to conform us to the image of the Son. Maybe another way is when someone in the church is, comes to you and they see something in your life or you start talking about sin. We can demonstrate that we trust we are protected by the Lord by not being defensive. We know that the Lord protects us. And so maybe that person has something, that, something to say that we haven't seen. And so I think we can make it a conversation. How are you seeing this? And even if they're completely wrong, like you should thank someone that they don't want to see evil thrive in you, that they want to see goodness and righteousness thrive. We also see that we should be glad. Um, I think this is important for us to meditate on as a church. I'm so thankful for our church. We are a, a serious church. We take the Lord very seriously. We're like I see us in so many ways applying this passage. Um, you know, I, I think it's good to be a glad and happy church as well. Uh, you know, especially for more serious personalities in the same way that I have to work to sometimes not always just be more on the happy, joyful side and take things a little bit more seriously. Uh, I think we have to really strive hard and think about like why do we not demonstrate more gladness and rejoicing? And it might mean going back to the scene that we saw, this theophany, uh, to recognize that this great and glorious God, all that he's done to protect you and save you. But now he, he has saved you. He has saved you. And so I think gladness can naturally come out. I mean, we've been trying to introduce more songs like this, Save My Soul. We just sing this. Like, what joy there is that the Lord has saved your soul. Yes, there's sin you're fighting. You're going to be fighting that to the end of, the, of your days, but God has saved your soul. You're going to be, continue to have suffering and struggling, but listen, God has saved your soul. And I think that's the source of this gladness, that we're glad in the Lord, the covenant God who loves us, and we're glad that he has made and declared us righteous when we know we are not. So I think it's good to fight for gladness. You know, as we think about fighting for gladness, one of the things that makes it so hard is when it feels like sin or evil just, like it's just looming over us. Like we, we can't seem to escape it, whether it's in ourselves it's sin, it's sickness, it's culture. What, it just feels like we can't get away from the long shadow of suffering. And I think a passage like this is helpful to remember that evil has something looming over it. Our great and glorious God. And the evil will not last forever. So as you feel the shadows of evil, of injustice, remember that that evil does not have the final word. And then our psalm wraps up the same way that it began. Give thanks to his holy name. Pointing to our holy God, who is holy unlike us, and we we're told to give thanks and be joyful. It's precisely because God is holy. It's precisely because God will be just and fully eradicate evil that we can give him thanks and be joyful in our life today. And as a church, let's continue to fight for that together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you that we can come to you as our heavenly Father. That Lord, all the judgments against us have been met 
at the cross, and now we can come to you as a heavenly father, knowing that you protect us, that you watch over us, and that, Lord, you will see us through that final day when light shines. Lord, we cannot wait for that day, and until that day, we ask that you would sustain us, that, Lord, you would help us to grow in godliness, hating evil, and being glad and giving thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear this benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Go in peace.